Hi, and welcome to the Fertility Warriors podcast. I'm Robin Birkin, and I am so grateful and honored that you're here today. From my own journey with infertility and loss to becoming a mind-body practitioner and holistic fertility coach, it is my sincere hope that I can help make your journey to conceive lighter, more supported, and easier by sharing deep emotional well-being guidance, doable conception tips, and real talk about what infertility and loss looks like. I'm here with you every step of the way. Now let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Warriors. And I say this episode is probably one of the hottest episodes I've ever done. I am fielding questions nearly every day from Fertility Warriors in my programs, in my groups, on my Instagram about what to do about the COVID vaccine. How does it impact pregnancy, miscarriage, trying to conceive, infertility? So I have brought on today my good friend, Dr. Sasha Huckman. Sasha is a board certified fertility specialist. You are the only person who has been on this podcast three times now yeah. today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that is obviously a testament to how much I love our chats together. And the two other podcasts that we have done is one is, is IUI a waste of time? And spoiler alert, before you think that all we do is bag out on IUI is we have a look at what is IUI? How many IUIs has the research shown is a benefit or not? So we really go through lots of detail to help you understand what IUI is, understand where it can be a benefit and understand maybe how many to make the decision for yourself as to what you should do. And we also have another one, which was about like all of your questions answered from a fertility specialist, which I loved as well. So thank you for always doing these hot episodes with me. Thank you for having me. It's always so much fun. I think before we start, it's probably appropriate that we give a bit of a disclaimer here. I am me, Sasha is her, neither of us work for any pharmaceutical companies. We are human beings. Sasha is a board-certified fertility specialist, not the queen of any country or pharmaceutical company, nothing like that, like a human being who's read the research, who is here to help you make a decision that you feel good about or maybe help you generate some questions or some follow-up questions for your own medical professionals. And I think it's safe to say that neither of us are here to judge anyone either way. Yeah. So, and I'm going to ask, I've been collecting questions from everyone in my programs and I'm totally going to be like devil's advocate sometimes and ask some other questions. And you know that I do this and I love that we have these chats and that you give me the straight up answers and in a really loving way. So embracing myself. (laughs) Yes. So we're talking today. So obviously we, you know, are always talking to people in the infertility community and there's lots, like so many questions out there about all of the various vaccines that are going around. If we were to give a spoiler alert for everyone here who is navigating infertility, what's the current advice? So, I mean, the advice is for anybody trying to conceive and anyone who frankly is already pregnant or Mm -hmm. breastfeeding Mm -hmm. to receive the vaccine. It doesn't matter which vaccine, if it has been approved in your country, 
then you can go ahead and get it. I'm obviously not well-versed in what is happening in other countries outside of the United States because I don't treat patients outside of the U.S. Um, so for us here, that would be Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. And here in Australia, I, I'd say it's fairly safe to say that everyone would be looking at the Pfizer vaccine. You mentioned any vaccine, like there's not one over the other? Um. Correct. Yeah. No, I mean, there's obviously differences in the efficacy. We know that Pfizer, Moderna, which are the mRNA vaccines, tend to be more effective. And I'm, a, oh my God, I'm such a fan of the science behind it, being a total science geek and having done a lot of basic science research during fellowship and residency. Um, I mean, for me, it's the mRNA vaccines all the way, but the adenovirus vaccine, which is like Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, they're also really, really good vaccines, uh, despite what a lot of the media tries to portray with the side effects of blood clots and things like that. But um, we definitely know that the absolute risk, there's a difference between relative risk and absolute risk. Relative risk mm -hmm. means if you were to get this vaccine, you're saying, you know, uh, 20 times more likely to get a blood clot. But the, mm -hmm. in actuality, what that 20 times is, is like you go from like, you know, one in six million to like, you know, three in six million. And so mm. it's, and I'm just throwing out numbers. My math is terrible. So don't quote me on these numbers. But just as an example, the actual rate of getting these severe side effects is in actuality very, very low. Yeah. So, I want to do a bit of a record scratch. You mentioned NRMA and something else. So AstraZeneca is one type and Moderna and Pfizer is another type. Can you break it down and just explain to me what each of those are? Okay, so the mRNA vaccine. So mRNA stands for messenger RNA. Okay, mm -hmm. we have DNA, which is biochemically a little bit different from RNA. When mm. DNA gets transcribed in your cell, you then you get it transcribed to RNA or messenger RNA. What that is, is this is now the sequence that encodes for the protein to be produced. And it is then what we call translated into the protein. Um, the RNA is actually not in the nucleus. It's in an entirely different location. So when you get an mRNA vaccine, what happens is it's injected into your shoulder, right? So it goes into your deltoid muscle and the dendritic cells within your deltoid, these are your antigen presenting cells. They are helping to take the mRNA, which is basically coding and giving direction to make the spike protein. So the machinery within your cell is turning that RNA into the protein, which is a spike protein. And the dendritic cells are then presenting it to your immune system. And we have all different cell types in our immune system. We have B cells, which are the ones that make our antibodies. So dendritic cells present the antigen, which is the spike protein, and the B cell then makes antibodies to be able to then attack it in the future. And mm -hmm. B cells or these antibodies so that if you were to get exposed to the virus again, the, uh, the vaccine doesn't prevent from you getting exposed to a virus and, and having the virus. What it does mm -hmm. is it sees the virus, it sees the protein and says, oh, attack. We remember this one, attack it, <laughs> get rid right. of it. Okay, so to make this 
to try and translate this as I understand it. Pretending that, uh, uh, hopefully I don't confuse people even more, pretending that our DNA is like a castle, all right? So you can't really change the castle. The castle is the castle. Is, and then we have the soldiers outside protecting the castle and all we're doing is showing the soldiers what the Vikings look like so that if they see a Viking, they're like, there's a Viking, get it. Find that. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, so it's, like having a, it's like having a wanted sign and whenever someone sees who that wanted criminal is, you go after them right away. You know what they look like, you know exactly mm-hmm. who to go for contact so it's it's the same kind of idea um now this this is a little bit different than the adenovirus which basically the adenovirus this is a very old way of making vaccines this is not Mm. in technology way and um and the mrna vaccine just a disclaimer it's it's been around for a number of years now this isn't just Mm. brand new from the onset of covid that's Mm. why it was um manufactured so quickly because it's already been tried and tested in the past. But with the adenovirus, this is a weakened virus, which has the genetic, the only active information is just the um, genetic code for the spike protein so that Mm -hmm. when you get it, your cells are able to make the spike protein um, that is contained within this adenovirus it's a weakened virus because they remove the genetic material from the virus that causes an infection and only remain, the only thing that remains is what would encode the spike protein so that once again, your immune system is able to make recognize. Yeah. It builds the body so that in the future it recognizes the infection. Okay. So in the case of like Pfizer and Moderna, you're not actually getting given COVID. Well, in neither case, you're given COVID. Yes. So you're not getting COVID because these are questions that I had as well. It doesn't alter our genes or our DNA. It cannot physically do that. I never say anything's impossible because Mm. just such an absolute term, but it's extremely improbable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in, in the lab setting, I can convert RNA back to DNA. That mm-hmm. you know, there's like a process for that, but that process is so delicate and mm-hmm. um, it's very easy to kind of screw that process up. So it, it, it can happen in nature. It doesn't really happen as much. And so in, I mean, definitely in the case of the vaccines, it cannot enter the nucleus. There is no capability of doing that and it can't undergo what we call reverse transcription, which is going from RNA back to DNA and Mm -hmm. integrate into your DNA. So because very lame in here, and I know that like we need, I need to break this down for everyone listening. So RNA is messenger cells. So basically it's, so think of DNA, the Uh built-in DNA is the double helix. Yeah, it's each one is a nucleotide. It's like a sugar molecule. Okay. And there's a very, very slight biochemical difference mm-hmm. between DNA and RNA. Okay. But that small difference makes a big difference in what it can enter and what it can't enter within the cell. Mm-hmm. So RNA cannot go into the nucleus. The nucleus is like, imagine like 
bubble boy, you know, Mm -hmm. like you're contained within this bubble. That's your DNA. Yeah. Um, Nothing can come in. Right. Yeah. So things can go out, but not come in. So Mm -hmm. um, the DNA is protected. So you can't actually have the mRNA, the messenger RNA go back, go into the nucleus and then, and then insert itself into your genome. It just doesn't do that. It can't. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is the function of generally of RNA? So basically in our DNA, we contain about 20,000 genes. Okay. Mm. DNA is very complicated because within those genes, you have parts of the genes that actually code for protein, which the protein has a function in the body. And then other parts of the DNA surrounding what codes for the protein are actually not coding for anything. Mm. We believe that these are the parts that can help regulate when genes turn on and off and all these little minutia um, of our kind of um, function, physiologic functions within the body. Um, But basically within those genes, sorry, bring me back to the question. I'm like losing my train. So just trying to understand what exactly RNA is. So, oh yeah, sorry. So yeah, within the genes, mm-hmm. when something's on, like say for example, I need more estrogen because yes. my egg trying to mature now, right? And so as you have a maturing egg, that egg produces more estrogen. It needs more estrogen to continue to mature. So within the egg, you have the DNA within the nucleus, which is actually turning on specifically the estrogen gene. Call, and and I won't go into all the little detail about it, but now it's what the DNA is doing. It is making, it's transcribing it. So it's making a copy of that gene into RNA. The RNA then outside of the nucleus gets converted to protein. And now you actually have your protein function in order to exert its action on the body. Mm-hmm. And the DNA works as a, a way of coding things. So for example, you have like, if you think about your computer, you have everything kind of encrypted within the computer, but then now like my computer knows how to open up internet explorer, open up Gmail, click compose. And now I'm putting in the email address who I want to send an email to within the email. I'm giving instructions for someone, Hey, we're going to have a meeting tomorrow at this time. Think of the RNA as or the messenger RNA as that email saying, Hey, we're going to have a meeting tomorrow at this time. And that person now is able to join me for the meeting. Yeah. So kind of like giving a message saying, Hey, make this do this right now. Yeah. And so the COVID vaccine or no, just COVID in general, the type of infection that COVID is, is a, has a spike protein. Like if it was a flavor, the flavor would be well. It actually has multiple proteins. So the way the virus works is um, there's all these different proteins on the surface of the virus, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that protein is able to bind to your cell surface to get inside of your cell. That's the thing about viruses; it relies on the host cell in order to actually create the infection, so it can replicate, become more infectious, spread to Mm -hmm. other people and have negative effects on your body if you are symptomatic. Um, But the spike protein is not the only uh, protein on the surface of the virus. There are multiple other proteins that are there. 
And this is why there's this whole argument of immunity from natural infection versus immunity from the vaccine. Because mm-hmm. immunity from a natural infection, then you have kind of more antibodies to different types of proteins. Uh-huh. And okay. If you get the vaccine, you only have antibodies to the one protein on the surface. Mm-hmm. But you have it much larger amounts compared to getting it from natural infection. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. And you mentioned that when they looked, like, that they've been studying vaccines like this for a really, really long time. So this isn't as new maybe as we think it is. Well, some people, maybe some people think it is. Yeah, it's not that new. They've been working on it for a while and they're actually trying to use similar technology for cancer therapy as well. Um, And there are many publications from years back talking about it, even talking about how mRNA uh, therapy is going to be really big in the future. And Mm -hmm. so this hasn't, this isn't a novel idea. This Mm -hmm. isn't something we just came up with during the pandemic. So, um, but you know, when you suddenly have a ton of research funding, which is always the limiting factor. I mean, when I did my research, having to apply for grants, uh, you don't get the grant you want. The one you get is much less money Then that limits what you can and can't do. And if I can't do certain things that I want to do to prove something and I have to wait years to get that money, this is why it seems like research is so insanely, incredibly slow. It's because usually the limiting factor in most cases is the financial aspect of it. Yeah. And I was listening to someone who works in vaccines who said something along the lines of the FDA has eight months just to even acknowledge that they received one of your emails for like, because you have to move through all of the different stages. Like just that they have eight months just to let you know that they received that email eight months ago. (laughs) Yeah, no, the research process is um, extremely slow. I mean, even to get the first step of getting research done is like you need to get an IRB approval. Mm -hmm. And when I do it through the, it's funny, when I did my residency in a community hospital, getting IRB approval was much faster because it was a much smaller institution Mm -hmm. and um, there were less people, less research involved versus in fellowship when I would have to get an IRB approved, which is just like the institution's approval for you to even start doing the research project, it would take me, and I'm talking like retrospective studies, which means that I am, all I'm doing is looking in patients' charts to help me answer a question. I'm not experimenting on anyone. I'm literally looking at data in the charts. It would take me a year to get that approved just Mm. so I can go into my own patient's charts to review their medical information and use it for data for a publication. So even though I can go into their charts, I can't use it for a publication until I get the IRB approval to ensure that no one is inadvertently harmed. And in that case, the theoretical harm that could happen is a leak of private medical information. Mm. And so even that takes a significant amount of time. Obviously, there are emergency cases such as the pandemic where it can get expedited, but usually you have a really, really large team, but there are so many ethical questions that have to be addressed before you can even proceed, which is why usually children and pregnant women are not included initially 
And the main reason for that is when you are going to include vulnerable populations, it makes approval much more difficult and complicated, which when you're trying to start your research, a lot of times you opt out of the vulnerable mm -hmm. populations because you just want to get your approval to get started. Do we have research now on how COVID vaccines affect women who are trying to conceive, affect pregnancy loss rates, affect um, like pregnancies? We do actually. And it's very, very clear that the pregnancy rates, the miscarriage rates, the adverse pregnancy outcome rates are pretty much exactly the same between the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated groups. In fact, it the uh, complications related to pregnancy were a little bit low, were, were lower in the vaccinated group. Mm -hmm. um, and so we know that for sure it is very safe in pregnancy. In fact, um, since the uh, vaccine was released, when I was still in fellowship, we were giving everybody the vaccine in the middle of their IVF cycles. And totally coincidentally, our, I, our pregnancy rates have been the highest this last year. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's completely unrelated to the vaccine. Yeah. Um, it's a coincidence, but we definitely know it's not harming anything. Mm -hmm. So... Ah, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to quickly jump in and express how grateful I am that you're here today. Just to let you know that if you'd like more emotional well-being, resilience and conception tips to check out my programs and services, you can find me on my website at robinburken.com or on Instagram at robinburken. All right, let's get back to it. And can we talk about effects, long-term effects? Is there, in terms of vaccines, there are a lot of people who are worried about like, yeah, but what if in 20 years or what if in five years or 10 years something has happened because I got this vaccine and I like rushed it through without thinking about it? Is that a thing with vaccines? No, it's not. I totally get the fear for non-scientific people. Um, and when you don't understand the science behind what you're being what you're being given, it is scary. Like you, you are really trusting everyone but yourself at that point. Um, for some people, it's very easy because they're like, well, I've always had such a good experience with my doctor. Like my doctor wouldn't give me something that would harm me. And, and that's true in 99% of the cases. Mm -hmm. you no, know, we always have a few bad apples and everything. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but that being said, when it comes to vaccines, they're actually eliminated pretty quickly from the body. So if mm -hmm. you're going to have a side effect, we're talking hours, days to maybe weeks, but definitely not months into years. It's totally out of your system and will not cause any long-term side effect. If we think about the other vaccine that was developed the quickest, aside from the COVID vaccine, we're talking polio back in the 1950s. Um, well, in that case, the major adverse effect there was because it was a weakened virus. There's mm -hmm. always this theoretical risk that a weakened virus can be converted into an active virus. Mm -hmm. And one in every 2.4 million people who were vaccinated, it kind of turned, became active and they became paralyzed. That being said, that was polio. That was polio in a long time ago, not COVID. We're not talking about yeah, COVID. Not COVID. <laughs> this is polio like in 1952. Yes. Okay. And even when that happened, um, it manifested itself within one to four weeks. Mm. And so 
if if you're worried about long-term side effects there i mean technically anything's possible but really it's it's not possible yeah so um you know and, and for those who are super worried about long-term effects of the vaccine which we know there are essentially going to be none we know for a fact that the covid infection has been documented to have more long-term morbidities and so mm. Even though it is rare for younger people, we know in the older folks that they tend to have chronic lung, heart disease as a result of severe COVID infection. Um, but even for young adults who have had a very severe infection, especially those who have been intubated and finally extubated, they are still complaining of not being physically fit, can't walk long distances without feeling the need to stop and, um, you know, kind of catch mm. up breathing. A lot of heart arrhythmias have been reported even in young adults. So we definitely know secondary to the COVID infection, especially if it's been severe, that you are really at risk of having long-term health effects from that. I, like It's really interesting that you mentioned the polio vaccine. I can't remember his name, Edward Tolka. I don't really, I can't really remember, but he released the vaccine under, I don't even know what you call it, Creative Commons. Under, <laughs> that's what we call it in marketing speak. Like he released it just, here's the, here's the vaccine, everybody just take it. And it's, I, I feel that the biggest disservice to this vaccine is that politicians are the people who are giving us the information rather than scientists and people from the medical industry. And I feel as well that it's really hard for people who don't 100%. Like I'm sitting here being like spikes, what? And so, you know, we have to think about like the rest of the population, like no, who out there is actually explaining to people exactly how things work. And I feel as well that not only do we have not as much trust as we used to in the 1950s for politicians, but also for pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Where do you sit in terms of pharmaceutical companies? Because doctors would be the people who would be like closest to them. Yes, totally. Um, I mean, it's definitely come a long, long way. It's not perfect. There are always going to be people in every profession where they're shady. You can't trust them. They're money driven. Um, of course, that luckily is more rare in the medical field, but not so much in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, the FDA has really, really uh, done a good job at trying to minimize this in the U.S. So, for example, if I am going to a rep-sponsored dinner, which at this point, as a physician, the only way I can get paid by a pharmaceutical company, whether it be in goods or money, is either through them sponsoring a lunch or a dinner, um, giving me a pen or a lip chap or some very small little token of appreciation for their time. For here's a stress ball. Yeah, here's here's a stress ball. Oh, here's a, here's a lip balm <laughs> has our company name on it. Um, or you can have a speaking engagement that is paid and it's fairly well reimbursed. However, if you are being paid by a pharmaceutical company and you have speaking engagements, 
legally speaking, you are, you have to actually disclose this to your patients before you prescribe a specific medication. So mm-hmm. say in the future, Merck decides to pay me for speaking, you know, anytime I use this stuff, I'm going to have to tell my patients. Yeah. Even though I use it anyway. Mm. Yeah. Right. And isn't there like an online data? Is there an online database? Yeah, that- we had talked about it last time because I know mm. that came up and you can actually look up how much money your physician is getting from pharmaceutical companies. I think mine was something like, I can't even remember if it was 170 or maybe like something around there. And that's usually just from attending lunches or dinners, which I think it's even overestimating because of all of my dietary restrictions. <laughs> I can't eat anything. <laughs> I didn't eat the steak. <laughs> I'm like, where's the tofu? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, just on an aside, I was talking to Ross about this the other day. I was looking at a restaurant and their vegan options. And I'm like, why the fuck is it that the chefs always think like, oh, I'll just give her some roast vegetables with some lettuce yes. on the side. I'm like, seriously, oh. come on. Um, <laughs> oh, so that's just an aside. Um, Okay, I'm going to go through my questions. So if, so I think we've kind of covered this. My question was, why should we get the vaccine if we might still catch COVID? Because COVID is a motherfucker. Uh, Um, Yeah, risk of long-term effects. Yes, we talked about that. And then, I mean, I know people say this all the time, well, I can still get COVID. Like, okay, well, okay, realistically, you're young and healthy. There probably isn't too much of a difference for 99% of people, whether you got the vaccine or not. So for you personally, it may not change very much, but we do know for a fact that if you are vaccinated, that you are less infectious when you have COVID compared to if you were not vaccinated. And we do have to be, uh, we live in a society, right? We have to care about other people. Like if we were all selfish, then my God, it would be chaos on earth, which mm. I mean, it is a little bit of chaos. <laughs> <we speak>. It would <laughs> be more chaos on earth. It would be even more chaos. Yeah. And so if you think about your parents, your grandparents, even if they're vaccinated, if they have any morbidities or if they're immunocompromised, then they're not going to be quite as good at being able to fight off the infection if they were to still get COVID. Also, We're talking right now to mostly reproductive age women who most likely have kids or are about to have kids. The kids can't get the vaccine if they're under 12. Mm -hmm. And so why risk? I mean, our our hospitalization for children have been at an all-time high now with the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. And these kids can't do anything about it. And so it's really kind of tragic. It's my biggest worry. Yeah. And like, you know, the the worst thing that I've had people say to me is, well, kids die from infections all the time. And I'm like, if if that was your kid who got COVID and died, I doubt you would be saying that. And I know it's rare, but no child should ever die of COVID. I mean, Mm -hmm. this should be a 0% rate at this point um, because it's a so preventable and (laughs) it's just like, it's just the wildest thing to, to really just die from what was a common cold and mutated to be something much worse than that. Obviously we know COVID-19 is not the common cold, but coronaviruses in general are what caused the common cold. 
And so it's just, it's pretty, pretty tragic to see when, you know, if you were vaccinated, the likelihood of anything bad like that happening to a child is extremely minimal, mm-hmm. almost close to zero. Um, but we are seeing, um, I've seen posts from my colleagues who are uh, neonatologists talking about babies who test positive and die shortly after. Yeah. And we're talking newborn babies now where this should never happen. Yep. Oh, that breaks my heart. And I will always remember, I don't know if her name's Danielle Jones, Mama Dr. Jones. She mm-hmm. very early, like last year, she caught COVID because she's a doctor and yeah. the the terror and like emotional exhaustion on her face when her children caught it and she felt that burden on herself because she had passed that on. Like I'll I'll just always remember her face about a month later when she posted um, and just how awful she felt. It's so, and so if you are vaccinated and you, you are less likely to pass it on to other people, I definitely can see the benefit in that. So if we're trying to conceive, it's not going to affect our chances of conceiving. It's not going to, it's highly unlikely to give us long-term side effects. Correct. If we catch COVID, then we're not going to have as many, like we have much less. Yeah. Yeah. Long-term, less likely to get intubated, less likely to be admitted to the ICU. And then what's worse is when you're pregnant, which I'm assuming most people listening to you are trying to get pregnant. Uh, Once you reach that pregnancy stage, which is you tried so hard to get here, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, the pregnant women are 22 times more likely to catch COVID and have a severe COVID infection. In our region here, in all of our ICUs, we have at least anywhere from two to five intubated pregnant women in ICU from the Delta, <sighs> all of them unvaccinated. And it's um, very sad to see because it not only affects maternal health, it also, there's a much higher rate of preterm births, low birth weight, fetal distress. Um, in extreme cases, babies being born with COVID and then potentially getting very sick afterwards. Um, and so, you know, pregnancy, if you think about why this happens in pregnancy and why you're a little bit immunocompromised, in order to become pregnant, your body's immune system has to shut down a little bit in order to allow this embryo to start kind of taking over your body. Mm-hmm. You know, it, mm-hmm. um, this is why we have reproductive immunologists for those who have implantation failure, recurrent implantation failure. There's something going on with the immune system that's kind of attacking the embryo within the uterus, making it, um, I mean, the, the endometrium has so many immune cells, which is probably why women are reporting changes, temporary changes to their periods after the vaccine. That's definitely a possibility. Don't really know why yet, but mm-hmm. it makes sense. If you think about it, all the immune cells, now you're getting this uh, pretty big immune reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure there's somewhat of a systemic effect. Um, and so when you're pregnant, your immune system has to kind of shut down a little bit. You mm-hmm. don't have as strong of, a, of an immune system. And so you're more likely to get pretty sick from things like the flu or COVID or, you know, other infections. Mm-hmm. 
can we just talk about timing then? So what, like that's actually kind of two of the questions that I've been asked. So one is, do we need to wait? Like what if I'm right about to start an IVF cycle at the, like the same time as I've been able to get an appointment? In Australia, there's not, we're still like booking in a month or so in advance for appointments. So it's probably a bit dissimilar to the United States where I think that you've got ample supply, but it's not that easy for us in Australia to be like, I'm going tomorrow to get my vaccine. We've got to book in for this. But what if that's right when we're about to start an IVF cycle? Is there any kind of wait time that we should wait? Should we not do it in the same cycle? And then the next question is, what have people reported in terms of it affecting cycles? So anecdotally in the clinic, I haven't seen any cycles being postponed as a result of getting vaccinated. That being said, if your period is a little bit late or a little bit early, mm-hmm. we just modify your cycle according to what is happening. Because most gotcha. of the time when you're starting an IVF cycle, you call with the first day of your period to let your doctor know like, okay, I, um, <laughs> I, I bled and sorry, guys, it was selfie. I took a photo. Yeah. um so yeah you'll you'll call to let them know that you're it's your first day of bleeding and then the nurse or whoever you're speaking to will let you know to start your meds so if that date is slightly changed it really doesn't change much in the grand scheme of things so okay but some people like it might just come a few days earlier it might come a bit later and that's possibly because just because of all of that stuff going on yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I suspect. I know some people are currently studying it because mm-hmm. right now all we have is anecdotal evidence from women saying, well, my period's changed, my period's changed. And um, we don't actually have any data to support this. So, mm-hmm. it could, you know, correlation doesn't always equal causation. It might just be a complete coincidence for a lot of these women. It could also just be the fact that everyone is so stressed out because the media sucks, the whole, everyone's vibe is off. And so, there are other factors, confounding factors that you can blame these changes on. Mm-hmm. Um, the last question that I have, does the vaccine cross into the placenta? The vaccine itself does not cross into the placenta, but what happens is as the mom creates antibodies, the antibodies will then cross into the placenta. And this has been studied. There was actually a study a little while ago out of Harvard that showed that pregnant women and breastfeeding women who were vaccinated are passing their antibodies to their babies. And so their babies are getting passive immunity. Mm. Which So it's probably a benefit, not a... Yeah. It's, it's a huge yeah. benefit. Yeah. Okay. Um, so is there anything else that you want to tell us about COVID-19 or the COVID-19 pregnant, uh, COVID-19 vaccine in either pregnancy for fertility or infertility, women trying to conceive, pregnancy loss, all of this realm of what we talk about, the fertility warriors, is there anything else that we need to know or that we should know about it? I would say that um, if you are someone who is really hesitating because you're torn. And a lot of people who have reached out to me on Instagram are kind of in that category of they're not anti-vaccine, but they are concerned. I mean, there's a lot at stake with their fertility. I would really have a sit down with your reproductive endocrinologist and only your reproductive endocrinologist and have a real conversation, write down your questions, express your concerns, 
And I would hope that they could explain things in a non-judgmental fashion. Um, you shouldn't be made to feel judged for having these concerns because um, only you know the difficult road that you've been going through in order to try and get pregnant. Um, from what I'm telling you is that the vaccine is safe, it is effective, it doesn't affect your fertility in any way whatsoever. It does not cause miscarriages, it does not cause uh, adverse pregnancy outcomes, but getting a COVID infection can certainly result in the adverse pregnancy outcomes. Maybe not so much fertility issues, maybe not so much a higher rate of miscarriage, um, that's been kind of debated, but we know that the infection is bad, spreading it is bad, um, but whatever your concerns are, just write them down and, and ask those questions and resort to someone who is trusted and is a professional in the field. You wouldn't go to someone else to fix your car except for a mechanic, right, that you trust. You're not going to take your car to a pharmacist to fix it. So it's the same thing with the vaccine. You want to go and take these issues that you have to your doctor, especially a reproductive endocrinologist who their primary goal is to get you pregnant. And uh, there's also a lot of motive and incentive for most doctors to get you pregnant, aside from wanting to do good on your part. In most cases, their pregnancy outcomes or their, their pregnancy rates are usually um, public knowledge. And so you always want to get good scores on that and show that you have high pregnancy rates coming out of your clinic. So, and if it's uh, trash, you'll get fired <laughs> or your clinic. Trash, just gets you, no you get more patients. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like here in the US, we have SART. Um, yep. And so that's like an online um, kind of record showing each IVF clinics year to year, their pregnancy rates and live birth rates. And so if it is really low, I mean, most people kind of get turned off and go elsewhere. So mm -hmm. we want high pregnancy rates. We will never give something that can negatively impact that. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and answering all of our questions. I know that it's really appreciated by our listeners that there is someone who is just as open and honest as you, who is always willing to just explain things in plain English and break it down and be patient with me uh, as I ask all of the questions. And guys, I also want to encourage you, a lot of the fertility specialists on Instagram are doing lots of Q&As about this. Go and check their highlights as well. If there's any questions that have been missed, the chances are they're answering them, they're putting it on their highlights because they want to be a source of knowledge for you. They want to help reassure you and, I guess, apply the knowledge that they have um, to be able to support you and to be able to answer all of your questions. So make sure that you go onto, you know, the Instagram accounts of the uh, fertility specialists out there because I know that they're trying to disseminate as honest information as like all of the research, everything that's out there. Totally. Cool. Thank you so much. Wow. What are we going to talk about for episode four? <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Fertility Warriors. We'll meet you again same time next week. Before you go, though, if you do need some further support, then we encourage you to come and join us at the Mind Body Fertility Reset, the ultimate community for anyone who would like to conquer stress and fuel their fertility. 
In the Mind Body Fertility Reset, we focus on some of the big pillars to fertility awesomeness. That is community and support, having community there to lift you up and to carry you through your hard times. Sustainable and small steps lifestyle support, helping you conquer your diet goals, your movement goals, cut out toxins and enjoy food and becoming your best and healthiest self in a small steps and sustainable way. And lastly, and what I think is most importantly, emotional well-being. Infertility and trying to conceive can be an incredibly hard journey. And it's really hard when we haven't learnt the skills through school and through other avenues to help support ourselves through really hard times. So in the Mind Body Fertility Reset community, we go through all of these things to help you become your best and healthiest self and thrive despite this journey. To find out more, visit us at robinburkin.com slash mindbodyfertilityreset. And lastly, we need to let you know that any of the information contained in this podcast is for inspirational and educational purposes only. It doesn't substitute advice from a qualified medical professional or mental health expert. Please know that there is no shame ever in getting more help when you need it and to always consult with your medical professional before taking on any changes to your journey. Wishing you all the best and cannot wait to catch you next week. Bye.